You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Olivia Crummel. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Tim Burrows. Hello, Damien, and hello, Liv. And Xander Wilson. Hello, all. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Xander speaks with O-Media CEO Kathy O'Connor about how O-Media is bridging the gap before Move 2.0 with its own bespoke data sets. That's the way that, uh, you know, over and above industry currency, we seek to sort of differentiate our audiences where we can. The importance of ongoing education around the benefits of digital out of home. The things that we, we know about uh, digital out of home is that it is far more adaptive creative medium than uh, classic inventory and a certain kind of advertiser has gravitated toward that. And why O-Media is focused on better leveraging its outdoor assets rather than diversification. You know, coming in as a new lens on the business, there is a lot of upside in the assets that we do have. But first, the week's topics. Some big departures from companies and agencies in the marketing world. A new Olympics campaign plus Seven's best ad contest and... A big push for indie agencies and the IMAA as they look towards the big end of town. It's been a big week of movements in the media and marketing industry with some big name departures across the board. Ross Bethanausen has been appointed president to lead 72 and Sunny Sydney office. Chris Kay has left 72 and Sunny to go back to England as CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi. Justin Rubin has become ECD of CHE Proximity and Georgia Jones is the new Melbourne GM for Saatchi and Saatchi. But there are two moves we're going to focus on in particular today. Leo Burnett, CEO Melinda Gertz, is departing after a 30-year stint with the business, while Audi CMO Nikki Warburton has also announced she will be departing next month. Xander, a 30-year career at one agency is quite something. Can you tell us more? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned there, Melinda Gertz will end her time as Leo Burnett Australia CEO, a a job she began in 2017. Uh, Before that, she spent 15 years as the CEO of Leo Burnett in Melbourne um, and started with the agency in its Chicago office more than 30 years ago, which which is quite the stint. As you mentioned there too, Emma Montgomery has been named as her replacement. She actually returned to Australia just earlier this year to take up the uh, dedicated CEO role in Sydney. Uh, the, the last time the Sydney office had a dedicated CEO was Peter Bolsakovsky, who left in 2018, and at that time the role was absorbed by Gertz. Um, and Montgomery was also previously the global co-chief creative officer for TBWA Worldwide in, in LA, but was the head of strategy at Leah Burnett Sydney. So, so it's a pretty big homecoming for her. I guess it's hard to say whether publicists were expecting Gertz to to leave. And, and if they were, I guess bringing back Montgomery to Sydney earlier this year was a good move as it'll make the transition a lot easier than, I guess, bringing someone in from the cold. Uh, as for Gertz, she's uh, mentioned that she's decided to move home to the US to be with her family, including her 100-year-old father, who I imagine it's been quite difficult being separated from, especially since the pandemic began. Tim, you've been covering the industry for obviously many years. What do you make of Melinda's decision to leave at this point in time? Look, one one point to make is she was a huge part of the Melbourne agency scene in particular. Um, and that I think is where people would think of Leo Burnett's biggest successes in Australia, certainly in recent years. Um, 
And I guess also as an organisation, it needs to make up its mind about whether it wants a national structure or or a two city structure because we seem to have pinged back and forth a bit between the two. With you know Melinda stepping up, taking both, then we split again by the looks of it to Sydney and Melbourne, and now we're now we're back again. Um, but yeah, look, and, and some of the challenges certainly in Sydney is getting some some energy in there again i think i've talked about it on the podcast before just i when we were looking for office space for mumbrella a year and a bit back i happened to go into the uh leo Burnett office sort of just as you know a, a part of the group that was looking at spaces unannounced as mumbrella and it just felt like a place that was asleep in fact literally when i went to the back of the office in the creative area there was somebody who appeared to be asleep and um it it really felt to me like one of those agencies that um was uh, was on the quiet side um nikki warburton uh, who also announced she was departing her role hasn't been there for quite 30 years in fact she only joined audi in 2018 Uh, There were some interesting quotes and details in the press release regarding her departure. Damien, what did you make of that? Yeah, it was an interesting press release that came out. Look, she's been there since early 2018. She actually got a promotion during that time as well to Chief Customer and Marketing Officer. The one question I always ask when it comes to automotive, but particularly luxury automotive, is what exactly can the marketer achieve in, in that position? Uh, a lot of that creative and a lot of the campaign strategy is led globally. You know, you see it just in the campaigns that we see on TV and in print and digital. So it's a pretty difficult position to be in to have any sort of cut through. But like I said, she did get, get a promotion in that time. She worked with multiple agencies. Uh, the Monkeys did some interesting campaigns. Uh, BMF as well was uh, on the roster as well as 303 Mullen Low. Uh, which is also interesting when you think about you know three different agencies uh, led by the monkeys, but three agencies nonetheless on the roster for that. Uh, Audi under Nicky Warburton was the one of the first to jump on the uh, the slow TV movement uh, start of the pandemic, and they put out through We Are Social uh, the the long drive. It was essentially a four hour drive. So there were some interesting things that came out from Audi, but realistically. I think you have your hands tied a little bit when it comes to uh, really marketing some of those luxury automotive brands. Well, the the sales figures uh, currently for the year, they've shifted 7,504 vehicles. That's ahead of what they did last year, which was uh, 5,202 at this time. But of course, we all know that, that sales of vehicles, new and used, have skyrocketed because of that pandemic. Out of the the manufacturers at the moment uh, in in passenger and light commercial and SUV that that puts them I think sixteenth that they're behind BMW they're behind Mercedes Benz um, so obviously we don't expect them to be shifting what Toyota and Mazda and and the more common brands are, are shifting but Audi currently does sit behind the two that you would consider to be its main rivals uh, how much of that's down to marketing who who knows at the moment but uh, it was interesting as well to note that uh, in February, Volkswagen Group Australia, of which Audi uh, is a part of globally in terms of Volkswagen Group, Volkswagen Group Australia announced that Audi would become uh, part of the group in in Australia from a a, a national sales centre perspective. Um, 
and that uh, a lot of those uh, uh, positions and the opportunities there would be shared then amongst the group and, and make that uh, a bit more efficient for them. I think uh, previously Audi had shared uh, procurement and uh, had shared uh, technical abilities and things like that. So they're a bit more aligned or much more aligned now with the Volkswagen group. Whether that's affected uh, this position here, uh, I didn't get any straight responses on, on, on that, but um, not, uh, not perhaps a massive surprise. Tim, what do you think next for Nikki Warburton after a role such as the Audi CMO? One of the things is you always try and decode these announcements and, you know, one of them when you're saying people are going on to the next challenge, you know, that generally means that they haven't got a job lined up. Sometimes that means there's been, you know, some sort of enforced parting of the ways, but you you don't normally find out about that until a lot later. Um, I suppose one thing to notice about or note about the Warburtons is James and Nicky Warburton, one of the better known i think power couples is a bit of a cliche but one of the you know the the better known sort of families in media and marketing industry with james warburton over at seven um i think it's reasonably well known that nikki warburton during her time at Ozstar, um they were sort of bought out by by foxtel so i i think it's been the fact with both of them they both seem very driven executives despite the fact that they probably don't need to work so you, you know i i i suspect that we would only see nikki Warburton do her next role when it's something that she's kind of really interested in um, and a a, a big role rather than rushing into something. So as I say, you know, something like 11 years at Ozstar, um, you know, before that she'd been um, a couple of years at at DDB, so been on the agency side. And um, before that had actually been an automotive marketing kind of towards the start of, of her career as well with the people who were importing Hyundai at the time. So um, I... I suspect we'll see her do something big and interesting, but probably not straight away, is my guess. Next, Seven's Olympic ad competition and a new Olympics campaign. With the Olympics now less than a month away, the Australian Olympic Committee launched a new campaign with MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment encouraging kids to have a go and be inspired by their favourite athletes. Meanwhile, Seven revealed the details of its favourite Ad of the Games campaign. Xander, you've been covering the build-up to the Games for us. It's getting serious now. Talk of cancellation seems to have died down a fair bit. Uh, What were your thoughts on the new campaign? Uh, Yeah, so the new campaign came out this week uh, from the AOC and and put together by MNC Saatchi Sport. My thoughts are the kids are definitely cute uh, in this campaign. You'd imagine it'll definitely appeal to to kids and parents out there, which is, I believe, sort of the idea. And and we do know that that sporting participation rates, especially after Olympics um, and in and in Olympic sports, usually jump after the event has taken place. So so I guess that's what they're they're going for. Um, the campaign will feature across uh, AOC's media partners, so uh, outdoor with JC Deco, in print with News Corp and, and across the, the Channel 7 ecosystem as well. I can't help but think that they might have been able to come up with a slightly more imaginative slogan than have a go, uh, though I do realise that I guess that simple straightforward messaging does appeal to kids in theory. I can't help but think about 
our Prime Minister, aka Scotty for Marketing's If You Have a Go, You'll Get a Go speech. Um, so that might just be me, or maybe the PM has ruined that turn of phrase for everyone. Uh, and we also heard about another Adland competition. These are becoming uh, quite the popular thing to do. What details have been announced about that, Xander? Yeah, so this uh, Olympics advertising contest run by Seven was first flagged at their launch event in in April, 100 days out from the Games. And now that the Olympics are one month away, uh, Seven have revealed the details of it. Um, So there's going to be a million dollars worth of free ad inventory across Seven's sports uh, broadcasts, including the AFL Grand Final, Bathurst 1000, the Ashes and the Olympic uh, Winter Games for Beijing 2022, which will go to the best ad that runs across the Seven ecosystem during the upcoming Tokyo Games. And and as you allude to there, if that all sounds a bit familiar, it's because Nine are currently midway through running their own ad competition. That one's called State of Originality. And the, we should be seeing the second lot of entries for that one this Sunday during State of Origin Game 2. And as Nine has painstakingly told us, they announced theirs first last year. So that's fair enough. The difference being mainly with Seven's favourite ad of the Games contest is that it will be judged by the viewers through a public poll. The state of originality is going to be judged by a series of of, of ad people, uh, ad men and ad women. Um, and then for the for Seven's one, everyone who votes for that one uh, will go in the running to win a Qantas holiday package valued at $25,000. So it's a pretty reasonable price. Coming up next, indie media agencies and the IMAA pushing hard for increased relevance. Trust and transparency are the traditional factors when choosing to go with an independent agency over larger holding company-owned agencies. But with the emergence of the IMAA, the Independent Media Association of Australia, and digital inventory being easier to buy than ever before, is is it still inevitable that brands will move to the big end of town once they reach a certain size to get value and scale when it comes to buying? That was the crux of a Mumbrella feature published on Wednesday, specifically relating to the media agency side. Xander, you penned this one. Why was it a good time to write this piece? So we're going on almost 18 months since the IAMAA first formed. So it sort of seemed like the right time to, I guess, not only get a perspective on on how they have been working to change the landscape, but also from some of the brands that work with indie agencies as well. I, I think some of the key takeaways, at, at least Sam Buchanan, the GM of the IAMAA, was trying to get across is, is he strongly believes that the the playing field between indies and network agencies has, is leveling out. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. As you allude to, it's easier to buy digital, uh, so that makes uh, barriers to entry lower. But also he did mention uh, the trade credit insurance deal that the IMAA was able to broker on behalf of its members, uh, which he says has reduced the cost of insurance for its members by 75%, um, which is something that's allowed them to keep their prices lower. As I mentioned, I spoke to a whole bunch of brands as well, some who used to work with majors and some who have always been with indies. Um, and the stuff that you'd expect did, did come up a lot, trust, transparency, not feeling like just another client and and obviously having the owner of the agency very accessible. They, they're all big pluses, um, the things we usually associate with, with indies. But there were some other interesting things that came up too. Uh, themes like innovation and agility kept coming up and, and many of the brands I spoke to felt like 
they were able to to achieve more without their their agencies having to jump through the hoops that holding groups might have to jump through and as a result they could be more agile and and faster moving sort of quickly reallocating spend when they need to without sort of having to get lots of approval and lots of boxes checked um the question is, does this mean that more clients will stay with Indies or does it mean that that the move to holding companies is still inevitable? Um, Buchanan admitted that there will always be some clients who get to a certain size when they leave, uh, but he says more and more are staying with Indies and he's seeing that now. Um, and also that those who do leave quite often do so due to a global directive rather than necessarily due to their own desires to leave. Yeah, and I guess the IMAA and the indie agencies are always going to, you know, say that they can, uh, you know, offer things that the the big side of town can't offer, and and they've got uh, some very specific uh, abilities there that the, the bigger end can't uh, can't actually compete with in a sense. But uh, Liv, you spoke with uh, the new CEO of uh, UM Australia, Anathea Roos, recently. What was her take on on the, the I guess the abilities of larger agencies at the moment? Well, interestingly, she said to me that when it comes to her perspective on clients, um, she's not fixated on size at all and and bigger isn't always better. In fact, in her experience, particularly in the US, some of the really big clients uh, had siloed teams because they had the creative and the media teams separate. So that created some issues from a holistic uh, campaign approach. And she also said that in her opinion, what makes a good agency is one that has a blend of clients that are at different stages of maturity. So from the, you know, smaller startup, uh, you know, perhaps state or national organizations all the way up to then the big global accounts, which I thought was quite interesting because it would be interesting to hear how an agency with the overheads of UM manages those smaller, more nimble clients who really need, I guess, a bit more um, TLC and, and obviously have a very different price point when it comes to media. But having said that, she did say that, you know, it's always good to have clients who are also experimental with uh, within the agency. So perhaps that's how they, you know, train their staff to do things in a different way is using those clients that are don't necessarily have those big budgets. I guess with the IMAA as well, it's interesting to see this new push from indie media agencies, but realistically, We've been talking a lot about the capabilities of indie agencies versus the big networks in general, not just in media. Tim, is this like a new time for indie agencies to to find uh, bigger clients, bigger business? What are your thoughts? Look, a few a few things to think about there. Um, one of which is I'm always amused when you hear the indie agencies talk up the value of being an indie agency until precisely the moment they sell to one of the networks and then actually nothing's going to change in the service levels and it's going to be exactly the same and all the same personnel until again almost precisely when the founder reaches the end of their earnout period and then they quietly leave that that's a pattern that goes on a lot over the years um but thinking about that indie versus globally aligned thing sort of from the perspective of a of a, a, a client of maybe a, a CMO, there's there's probably a few things to think about. You know, one of one of which is maybe the internal dynamics and the internal motivations are different. So, for instance, um, you know, m- maybe the one of the arguments for the big globally aligned companies, and this would go for media agencies or creative agencies, is is they 
they they can potentially take a longer term view on losing money on a particular account in the short term in order to to win it and keep going so sometimes that plays into the into the hands of um you know a client when they're they're looking to switch across for instance um so sometimes from that point of view they they particularly if they're big they get the big deals um you also sometimes get just the the ego needs of the the big client wants to be made to for, feel important with a big agency um you know i i remember once Ted Horton saying it in a, an event that elephants fuck elephants, talking about how big agencies go with big clients, uh, and that that tends to, and more to the point, big clients go with big agencies, and that tends to be one of the uh, one of the dynamics as well. Um, and I suppose the other thing, thinking about the dynamics, is if you if you work for a global agency. If you're in management, certainly if you're in creative, you have probably got KPIs about winning awards. And of course, winning awards is it gives new clients a bit of assurance that somebody must be half decent if you're putting them on a pitch list. But then once you're a client, it's not necessarily in your interests if some of the agency are more focused on winning the next award, doing the next creative thing, uh, rather than actually helping you sell more widgets if it's not a particularly sort of glamorous piece of work or whatever so so you've 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 got that factor as well with the globally aligned uh, companies um and then of course you know something xander's already alluded to on the media agency side is the other thing with with big agencies is some of where they get their momentum or edge is when they have big trading relationships with the big media owners you know, there's there's always some form of favors done back and forth, and the favor is usually done on the strength of spending the client's money, and then when it, the favor's called in, it's usually in some way to the benefit of the agency. Now that obviously, you know, falls falls around sort of transparency and trust and all those things, and I think most agencies have kind of cleaned up their act to, you know, I think probably over the last two or three years to a large extent, you just don't, you don't hear the rumblings you were either even four or five years ago. Um, but, you know, none, nonetheless, there are arguments for independence, but it probably just means you need to do more due diligence because, um, you know, you get good independence and poor independence. So there's probably just more disparity. So you need to be really sure about what you're getting into. Coming up next, Xander chats with O-Media CEO, Cathy O'Connor. Hello, I'm Xander Wilson, and joining me for this episode of the Mumbrella Cast is O-Media Chief Executive Officer, Cathy O'Connor. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Cathy. Thank you for having me. So it's really nice to have you in the studio here. I think you're about the third one that we've had an in-person chat since, since COVID. I just wanted to start with something that I think we've briefly discussed before. Um, now that you've been in the job at O for, for a while now, I'm just wondering how you're finding the exciting world of, of out of home and, and then also on the other side, the, I guess, the added scrutiny of running an ASX-listed company. Well, there are two obvious places you might start in a chat with me, so thank you. Look, I think five months in, which, uh, which I think qualifies me for being there for a while now, five months in, I can say that uh, I have absolutely loved the change. 
moving from my background in radio into a new sector out of home, but substantially in the same industry. And everything that I believed to be true about out of home is playing out in front of me. It's a great business, a great sector, lots of passionate people and plenty of, uh, of things to look forward to and growth ahead and so forth. So that's been terrific. And I think I've probably realised it's a far more detailed business than I might have appreciated from the outside looking in. And I also am sort of reflecting on what a prominent place it holds, particularly in the larger advertising agency groups uh, sort of vision. They, you know, it's a, a substantially a medium that they support more than they did radio. And for that reason, I think the conversations are more involved, more passionate, more future focused. And all of those things make it a great place to work and a great medium to work with because you're dealing with a, a sector that where both buyer and seller are genuinely engaging in sort of working on the future together. So that's a, a wonderful place to lead a business with customers that are really engaged and, and want to see progress and all the things that we do. In terms of the second question you asked, working as the CEO of a listed business, that's been fantastic as well. It was an experience that I wanted and uh, I've got the for great fortune of working with a board of very clever people who understand the business. Some have a longer history with it than what I do, but um, all great strategic thinkers, really passionate about the sector and our place within it. And so that for me, I'm a very collaborative person. So I think that environment suits me well. And there's a natural uh, series of deliverables as a listed company, great onus on compliance as there must be. And all of those things play well to my organised side and uh, I'm really enjoying it a lot. So that uh, has also been uh, a really positive shift for me. Yeah, definitely. And obviously the last gig was was Nova Entertainment. You had a, a pretty good stint there. I just wanted to know, I mean, we're both people that have worked on and reported on radio, but with radio networks being so hyper-competitive in Australia, are you finding the outdoor sector maybe a bit more collaborative, especially with everyone at the moment working together towards that same goal of the launch of Move 2.0? Well, I, I'm a competitive person, so I, I like competitive media. I liked working in radio and I can see that elements of out of home are also very competitive. And I think that uh, there is, uh, again, uh, having none of the history of working in the sector, an enormous amount of collaboration between between all of the out of home businesses. And uh, I talk to, to my my peers in the other companies regularly and we of course meet uh, you know very frequently with the OMA on things like measurement and and the marketing of the industry, the regulatory environment, all of the things that you would expect uh, that an industry is contemplating. And you know I think uh, people, people said to me, oh it's really competitive and out of home and I thought well I think radio is pretty competitive <laughs> as well. Yeah. But again uh, you know competition is something we love but but I always make the point, and I think my peers understand this point too, there's a much greater win in working together to compete for the sector against other sectors. And, uh, you know, it's probably five times as, as, as materially profitable to do that than try to rip a share off each other. And, you know, all of the, the people that, uh, that we compete with are really good at what they do and, and very passionate about the sector. So we have a lot of common interest in as much as we compete you know, to day to day. So I've really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I 
sort of observe how recently those operators that haven't been part of the OMA have now joined. And again, very good businesses that have had lots of growth in the sector and that's just making that OMA contribution a, a bigger one, a, a more representative one and therefore a really important one. Yeah, and the OMA and, and measurement is something that I definitely want to get onto in a few minutes. But um, as you well know, Mumbrella and, and the industry and the trade trade media industry uh, at large has been covering measurement quite extensively this year. Uh, obviously, at this stage, there's there's a reliance on mobility data for digital assets. But the way that it is used does differ among among different competitors. Can you talk a bit to how O Media currently measures its own digital assets? As you know, uh, we're evolving the industry currency, which is MOVE, and MOVE, which uh, dates back to you know several years ago in the sector, was developed really before digital inventory had the presence that it does today. So I think the industry will acknowledge there's some catching up to do with MOVE, and that work is certainly in progress with developments this year and then in 2023 still to play out. Uh, and in the interim, uh, as is often customary with lots of different media, each operator within the sector uses their own bespoke uh, data sets to, to communicate about the way audiences are moving. And uh, in our case, we have mobility data from DSpark and we also have the Quantium data, which is the biographic data exclusively. And whether it's about mobility or whether it's about the actual granular nature of customer behaviour, uh, that's the way that, uh, you know, over and above industry currency, we seek to sort of differentiate our audiences where we can uh, relative to the briefs that we're receiving. So, uh, you know, I think the beauty of the future evolutions of MOVE is that we will be moving to one apples for apples comparison in, the, in that sort of very, very standardised way. And I think the industry is looking forward to that. Um, I still see a place for... for you know, uh, bespoke data sets where we can educate that second layer of intelligence on top of some of the work we do with advertisers. And I just reflect on 2020, the way that O-Media was able to really run to that space of the vacuum of knowledge around audiences in a world where there was a global pandemic on and no precedent for what was happening in customers' uh, lives. We were able to use our mobility data in particular to say, hey, we've got the same population here, uh, but they may not be moving in some of the environments they were moving. They're now in their suburban centres. They're now in regionalist areas when they're holidaying and so on and so forth. So we took that migration of behaviour story to the market in a very real weekly way and that was a great example of where the industry currency wouldn't have allowed us to be able to do that. This uh, this was really a way that we could add extra value, uh, you know, as a as a marketing partner to uh, a lot of our customers and the questions that they were asking of us. So I think we are moving to that dual focus of being able to have the one industry wide currency that measures our customers' activities across all formats, both regional and metro Australia, both static and digital assets. And of course, each out of home operator may or may not elect to bring their own particular intelligence over the top of, uh, of those contemplations. And that's something that we've always done at O-Media. We believe uh, it's important that we continue to educate around our own assets and, uh, and our own sector. And particularly when we feel that increasingly with the fragmentation of media, out of home is 
the established medium that has growing audiences. And that's a very important point that we need to make as a sector uh, and as a company to really recommend a higher share of wallet for out of home. And so the more intelligence we can bring to those conversations based on genuinely robust uh, data sets uh, over and above the move currency is going to be really important. Yeah, and you mentioned education there. That's something that seems to come up sort of whenever I'm speaking with anyone in in the out-of-home industry at the moment. Um, And I I watched an interesting panel held by Verizon Media recently where where Charmaine Muldrick uh, from the OMA uh, spoke about the need to educate clients, especially when it comes to digital. What are the challenges there when you're trying to educate perhaps clients that haven't used digital before, they're they're reliant on perhaps static, but there isn't an industry-wide uh, accepted measurement at the moment is is it a question of maybe waiting to to roll out that really hard push on the education when move 2.0 is out or are you just trying to educate as many people about the benefits of of di- digital and dooh at the moment and then you'll continue to do so when move 2.0 is is in play well i think it's a probably a prospect of doing both so at the moment the things that we we know about uh, digital out of home is that it is a far more adaptive creative medium than uh, classic inventory and a certain kind of advertiser has gravitated toward that. So you see a lot of media companies with headlines about news of the day and so forth running to that space and several other uh, other categories that like the adaptability, real-time nature of it. And then, of course, uh, you know, the, the unparalleled share of voice you get through classic inventory, uh, you know, remains you know, a top priority for many marketers, particularly those that are interested in creating brand fame and and uh, and really seeing their 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 messages up there in a lasting way. So, uh, you know, the good news is Move One Point Five will address all of these things. So we will have uh, the ability to uh, provide more uh, insight around how digital performs and how classic perform. Uh, I think the 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 overriding uh, data suggests that it is a mix of digital and classic that get the most effective use of out of home. But depending on your brand uh, brief, depending on your marketing objectives, you may have usage cases to buy either only classic or only digital. But in our view, it's the mix where the potency is. And the beauty of uh, 1.5 is we will, we will now be applying what we call a neuro impact factor to the different types of inventory so whether that's digital large format small format classic large format small format you'll be able to see how if these different classes of inventory have an impact on the brain in particular memory encoding which as we know if you're familiar with neuroscience uh, is the gateway to brand recall which is the gateway to effective advertising so we will have a far richer story to tell uh, and it's not that far away. So appreciating I've I've not been in the sector and been exposed to the customers who have been waiting for this type of innovation in measurement, but I'm really proud that I've come in at the time where it's here. And you'll see in the second half of 2021, a very united uh, and a comprehensive uh, step forward for the out-of-home sector. And then, of course, uh, the game-changing metrics of Move 2.0, which come in 2023 and that is a significant piece of work. You know, one of the things that I've been really impressed by is the extent to which the operators within the sector are prepared to invest 
in currency, notwithstanding there may have been a view that it's taken a while to get here, it's a significant investment of time and resource into evolving the industry currency. These plans are approved, that money is being spent, and we have a working party now uh, with no less than 19 particular milestones to be delivered in a very prescribed way to ensure that we're stepping toward the delivery of MOVE 2.0 in 2023. So I've just been really impressed by the kind of machine behind it. And of course, uh, you know, as the largest operator in the sector, uh, we are 100% behind the development of this uh, of this research. And really, because we are the largest operator, we have the largest diversity of formats. We have the largest geographic footprint across metro and regional so for O-Media, this really is a game changer and uh, we're just looking forward to leading the sector and leading our business, you know, as part of that into this new lens on out of home. And in the end, uh, you know, in doing that, we believe we can advocate and justify our audiences, particularly their scale and the fact that scale is not being disrupted and uh, that just augurs well for being able to grow our share of the total advertising dollar. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I just wanted to move on to looking towards the, the rest of the year. And, and obviously, the, the financial year is, is coming to an end shortly. Is, is there any trading update you can provide ahead of the, the full reports coming out? Um, we've obviously seen some super positive numbers from the standard media index in terms of ad spend for out of home the last couple of months. Yes, so we gave an update on trading at our AGM in May and our half yearly results will be out in uh, in August of this year and we don't provide guidance uh, at the moment. Uh, fair to say, you know, it's a pretty fluid media environment at the moment. Uh, the recovery over the past uh, few months that we updated on in May is very much a road-led recovery for out of home. So those formats, road, retail, street furniture, we're really seeing uh, demand, uh, you know, above what we saw in 2019, which is great for the sector. Um, those uh, more place-based environments and uh, the, the, the travel-related categories, airports, office towers and so forth, they're taking a little longer to recover, but we certainly are seeing emphatic recovery particularly in audiences and particularly in office towers in O's case. So we've got uh, our aggregate office towers back to about 75% of 2019 levels and higher in some markets. What we did see uh, in the more recent lockdown, we don't have the Victorian numbers fully through yet, but in West Australia where there was a lockdown, we actually saw the recovery out of that lockdown, I think it was the end of April, almost immediate uh, and those audience numbers, they jump back to pre-COVID levels. So we know that Australians are becoming better at uh, responding to their environments where there are changes brought about by health guidance. Um, but really, uh, generally across the entire sector, be it road audiences uh, or some of these other environments, the word is recovery. Uh, the momentum is starting for the sector and uh, while we remain sort of attuned to uh, to the external environment with COVID certainly not behind us, I think we can say that consumers, our uh, our audiences, and our advertisers are both better at understanding the levers that they pull. So we don't see uh, knee-jerk reactions to lockdowns on the part of advertisers. We many adopt a wait and see approach. Uh, many do uh, sort of work with us to perhaps 
move things around. And of course, uh, in O's case, because we have those breadth of environments, in many cases, it's just a it, it's a reallocation of of investment as opposed to uh, to a step back from 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 uh, from campaigns, which I think is a great way to go. Yeah, and when you're looking at um, figures coming through this year, uh, is it obviously when they come out, they're reported as year-on-year figures. Are you looking more at 2019's figures as a comparison or are you looking at last year's figures as as a comparison, obviously, with the extenuating circumstances that were happening last year? My personal view is that comparison to 2019 is, uh, is really the base of comparison. That was the pre-COVID uh, era and, and, and clearly the like-for-like like sort of comparison to are you beyond a COVID impact should relate to 2019. Of course, we can look at 2020 and we'll see very large percentage increases. Um, but uh, but really, I think, you are you back to where you were? And in some cases, we're ahead of where we were. In other cases, we're still moving back toward, you know, where we were in 2019. So my personal view running the business is 2019 is, is, is the right measure. Yeah, and just uh, as sort of a side note, this is something that happened quite some time ago. O-Media bought Junkie in 2016. It seems like a sign that that more diversification was coming, but not much has followed. Um, what what's the situation with that? Is O Media looking to diversify in the next few years? So, my view coming into the business uh, is the recovery is first and foremost. When uh, when you have uh, an advertising industry, as many of us have experienced, with such a such a shockwave of 2020, you want to make sure you've reset the fundamentals of the business and that you're back on that path to growth. And I feel very confident that that's where the sector is and where O is within that. In terms of the other opportunities before the business, you know, I, I think we continue to look at all opportunities um, that will, will bring O the capacity to grow. But my personal view is that, you know, coming in as a new lens on the business, there is a lot of upside in the assets that we do have. And increasingly, my view is that if we, uh, if we were to leverage our scale more effectively, then I can see organic growth for O in doing nothing uh, in terms of M&A, just being the business that it currently is. And so part of that shift for us and, and for me leading the business as its new CEO is really to look at the assets that we do have and to, uh, you know, when I was talking about COVID before, to take that audience lens to the assets. One thing I sort of know of uh, out of home is it, it, it's the sheer physicality of the assets often lead people to come to you with predetermined views of how to use it. I want to be there. I want that site. I want that format. I want to be in the, in, in the roads where you know, the leadership team are driving or whatever whatever those predispositions are to the format. It's one of the great things that we have because out of home is everywhere and so everyone understands, you know, the unique place that it holds in, uh, in just your local environments. So it's a great thing but also I think it can be a limiting thing in terms of trying to get the best potential out of buying the sector. And... In our case, having the breadth of formats that we do, what we are now starting to understand is when advertisers and agencies come to us and say, here's the audience I'm trying to achieve, tell me how that audience interacts with all of your assets and actually don't limit us in terms of format, we're finding that we can achieve significantly greater results for often the same investments. 
So I, I think the move for us, and we are launching an initiative next month called Better Ways to Buy, is to start to educate uh, our clients and our agencies about the potential there. So in many cases, we're saying for the same investment, if I could get you sometimes up to a 20% better ROI, would you like to look at, an, an, at a better way to buy? And um, in our case, when we're not bound by the prescriptions of street addresses and sites, uh, what we can do is really quite powerful. And overlaid to that, uh, when we have advertisers that are prepared to work with us based on biographics, uh, we can achieve in our what our data says is double the ROI. So I feel in an environment where digital media has always bought based on audience, and increasingly it's how screens are bought, uh, I feel so energised by the fact that Out of Home can truly take an audience proposition to market. And in doing that, we'll do no less of format and location because that's what we're famous for. And in many cases, that's really what marketers want to do. But to overlay a more sophisticated set of intelligence onto the results that we're driving and to bring marketers and agencies on that journey and achieve superior ROI, that's when you really will start to see Out of Home move the needle in terms of its share of advertising. So that for me, uh, as a strategic priority for, for O-Media and for the out-of-home sector, far outweighs uh, any other opportunity that I can see for the business in this next sort of era. Yeah, definitely. And and you do touch on something there that, that many people sort of speak of um, within the sector, which is, which is that tapping into that unlocked potential or that, that locked potential maybe. Yeah. <laughs> It, it does seem that that everyone is is of the agreement that that there is still a lot of potential to tap into uh, how else can can the industry tap into that before move comes in um, or is move really going to be move to when are really going to be the thing that skyrockets out of home in Australia no well we can we can show superior ROI using biographics right now so you know, and this is work we're doing right now, you know, ahead of Move 2.0. Uh, and of course, we have Move 1.5 uh, to supplement that work as well. But uh, in terms of the creative um, potential for the medium, I think the whole world of the creative execution is there again for us to partner and educate the market on. Uh, what we know from our own data is that uh, creative is 40%, 41% of the effectiveness of an out-of-home campaign. I think it's slightly higher in television's case, but 40% is a significant... That's very high. Yeah, yeah. it's really high. So a lot of resource and current planning going into how we're going to continue to evolve the way that we educate and in, really inspire uh, advertisers into, into the sector. You know, I think that's one thing uh, that, you know, talking to a lot of customers and a lot of CMOs, you know, they do see out of home as that sector for brand fame and inspiration. You know, when when you're working in a competitive sec segment, brand against brand against brand, you often get asked the questions, what am I going to own? What can I really own to sort of put an emphatic stamp on my market, my brand, and grow my, my brand metrics? And of course, out of home in, in the traditional way it's been used is really good at that. But increasingly, to be able to use the, the medium in real-time adaptivity, uh, relative to weather cues or time of day, sporting results, local messaging, 
natural disasters, holiday periods, whatever is in the zeitgeist at the time, then as opposed to thinking the call to action or the more adaptive mediums are other forms of broadcast, you can absolutely do that now without of home. And I'm sure everyone operating in the space, no matter what formats they represent, would have several ca uh, case studies of great creative executions using digital out of home. So it's both an evolution of the currency, uh, a reliance on the the bespoke data sets that we do have, like Quantium or DSpark, and uh, education around creativity, which uh, which I think can absolutely, ahead of Move 2.0, help us build uh, the appreciation and usage case for out of home. Yeah, and we look forward to the innovative things coming from the sector in the next few years. Cathy O'Connor, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Mumbrella Cast today. Thank you, Xander. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for this week, but before we go... A friendly reminder that the Mumbrella Publish Awards' first entries are due next week. That's Friday, July the 2nd. This year, there are 29 awards categories up for grabs, spanning across digital, print, sales, journalism, marketing and more. So whether you're a small or large publisher, B2B or B2C, there will be more than one category ideal for you to enter. Why wait when you can save $100 per entry now? Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards for more info. That's it for this week. Thank you, Tim, Xander, Liv, for joining me. Thanks, Thanks Damo. Damon. Thanks, Damo.